This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for Thursday, December 7th. The federal Liberals announced their long-promised cap on oil and gas emissions. It's not as ambitious as expected, and we'll ask the Environment Minister Stephen Gilbo why. Plus, reaction from the power panel and a reality check on the carbon tax. Just how much does it fuel food prices? The answer may surprise you. We begin with a snapshot of this proposed oil and gas emissions cap. The federal government wants to cap emissions at 35 to 38 percent below 2019 levels by 2030. Now that's not as large a cut as had been expected. To put that into context though, a company burning 171 megatons in 2019 would have to cut that back to 112 megatons. But this plan offers some flexibility, allowing companies to exceed those levels, but at a price. The company would have to pay for those extra emissions by buying offset credits in a new cap-and-trade system or pay into a promised decarbonization fund. But that flexibility would effectively lower the emissions cap even further, to just 20 to 23 percent below 2019 levels. Under that option, the same company would have to reduce emissions to 137 megatons while paying for that extra pollution. This cap is part of Canada's goal to slash nationwide emissions by 40% below 2005 levels by 2030. Right now, Canada is on track to miss that target, but still achieve a nationwide emissions cut of 36%. Stephen Gilbo is the Federal Minister of Environment and Climate Change, and he joins us now from COP28 in Dubai. Minister, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much, David. Your framework proposes to cap oil and gas emissions somewhere between 35 to 38 percent below 2019 levels by 2030. That's less ambitious than the original target. So is this the plan you wanted or is this the best plan you think you could get? As you recall, when we presented the plan last year in 2022, those those numbers, for those sectoral numbers were not targets um, and they were based on purely economical analysis. But we wanted to have a sense of direction in terms of what should be the, the relative contribution of each sector to Canada's 2030 targets. But those numbers did not take into account technical feasibility, the time it takes to deploy technology, the investments needed. It was a theoretical analysis, but but a helpful one nonetheless. And and, and what we've done since then, certainly for in the case of the CAP, is worked with, with, with industry, work, work with experts, provinces, territories, indigenous nations, to, to figure out what was technically feasible, uh, achievable in terms of deployment of technology by 2030. Because as you know, the, the federal government ha- can act when it comes to fighting pollution, but, but, but we can't touch at production. The use of natural resources is a provincial jurisdiction. So we, we have to find that right balance where, where the pollution level goes down, regardless of what happens to production. Okay, so, so the, the, the original number was, was based on theoretical modeling. This is based more on what is practical uh, and, and technologically uh, achievable. But given that it is lower... I should have, I should have said what you just said. Okay, well, but, but given that it is... Much, much clearer. Right, but given that it is lower uh, than, than the, what was put out there for public consumption, um, you know, in, in the first place, and, and this framework doesn't really come into effect until 2026, can you still hit your overall reduction targets of, of 2030? Because even your, your latest report card on that says you're getting closer, but still four to five percentage points short of where you want the country to be. You're absolutely right. We're not quite there yet. Uh, we still have six years ahead of us to, 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 to deploy new measures, to make new investments. But we're, we're, we're getting closer. We're closer than we were last year. Um, our projections show that we will hit, for the first time in the history of our country, a climate change target in 2026. We have an interim target between now and, and 2030, which is in 2026. Uh, but obviously, for that to happen, we need to continue fighting climate change in Canada. And if Pierre Poliev and the Conservative Party have their way, then we're, we're going back decades in terms of deployment of technology, investment in transit, investment in electrification. But we are getting there, but I'll be the first one to admit we, we still have some work to do. And the plan that we table today in the House of Commons shows that we're closer than we were last year, but we're not quite there yet. Okay, still have some work to do, but even in what you tabled today, there is flexibility in this for the oil and gas sector to go even above 
uh, the limit you're imposing. Now, they have to pay for it by buying either offsets in a to-be-established uh, carbon offset market or a cap-and-trade system, or to pay into a to-be-established decarbonization fund. But even if they pay the cash penalties, Minister, they're, they're still emitting uh, over and above what the goal would be. Um, so how do you ensure that the financial penalties for that actually have an effect to, to reduce uh, emissions if, if people are going to be allowed to go over the limits for, for a cash penalty? Well, that's a good question, David. And we know that there are technologies that can be deployed quickly that will have major impact in terms of emission reduction. Earlier this week, I announced new methane regulations for the oil and gas sector where companies will have to reduce those those emissions by at least 75% by, by 2030. And methane is a very potent greenhouse gas, 30 times more powerful than CO2 in its capacity to warm, to warm the planet. On the other, on the other hand, we know that some of the technologies that these companies want to use will take more time than the, the, the six years we have between now and, and 2030. And we want to give them the flexibility to, to, to deploy that technology. And if, you know, if it's ready by 2032 or 2033, then they have the, the ability to do that. But those flexibility mechanisms are, are limited in terms of volume and they're also time bound. Like, it's not an open bar. It's not something that they'll be able to use for the next 10, 15, 20 years. It's for a certain amount of time until they, they are able to deploy the technology to make those investments that are required so that the sector, the oil and gas sector, can contribute, like other sectors in the Canadian economy, to achieving our 2030 targets. Right. So, so you mentioned the methane reductions, and there seems to be a pretty broad consensus in the scientific community, the industry, and government that, that those are achievable and, and the best bang for your buck in terms of emission reductions if you're an oil and gas producer. But a key part of this, Minister, relies on, on pretty large-scale deployment of carbon capture uh, technology, and there's not the same level of unanimity on that. There's a lot of skepticism about whether carbon capture can truly be effective at scale to achieve the emissions reductions that, that you're counting on. I mean, what if carbon capture isn't the answer? Uh, how does it work, Ben? So, so you're right that methane will, will get us part of the way. An independent analysis by the Climate Institute, uh, the Clean Climate Institute, showed that companies could reach a little over a third of their cap, of their emissions cap, through, through, through reduction in, in, in methane. Uh, but oil and gas companies are telling us that, that they think that carbon capture will play also an important role. Carbon capture is not a new technology. It's been around for decades. It's been used for decades, but what we need to, to do now is scale it up uh, in a way that will enable the sector to, to, to achieve its target. I, I, I should point out that, I mean, we're not putting all of our eggs in that basket. Carbon capturing technology is one of the technologies, one of the number of measures, more than 150 measures that Canada is deploying to achieve our 2030 targets. It will play a role. It will be, it will contribute to a few, per, some percentages to the overall achievement of Canada's uh, target by, by 2030. But it's not, it's not a silver bullet. It, it's not insignificant. It's not nothing either. Right. But it's not a silver bullet. Right. Uh, look, I want to move on, if I can, um, to some of the provincial reaction. Uh, to, I'm sure you're not surprised, but Premier Scott Moe and, and Premier uh, Daniel Smith uh, are, are not happy with this. In a, in a news conference reacting to your announcement, Daniel Smith said that you personally were a menace to Alberta and to national unity, and they're going to take steps to set up a constitutional shield against these measures, which they call overreach. Do you expect a legal challenge? Uh, how confident are you that this can survive a legal challenge? We'll see whether that legal challenge comes or not. But we're very confident that uh, that if that if it does, then we're on solid legal and constitutional ground. And in fact, the 2021 Supreme Court decision um, on carbon pricing clearly stated that the federal government can intervene in matters of climate change and in matters of climate change solution. And that's exactly what we're doing. We're not going after the production of oil and gas. We're going after the pollution levels. And, and we've been very careful. And in fact, if you look at the analysis that we've, that, that, that we've produced today, it shows that there, there might be an increase in production between 2019 and, and, and 2030 while the emissions, while the, the, the level of pollutions go down. So, you know, in, in, in a society like ours, they're certainly, uh, they can challenge this in front of the, of the court that they if they want to, and in fact, they've challenged just about everything on environmental issues. They've challenged carbon pricing, they've challenged impact assessment, they've challenged our, our regulation on, on, on plastics. So, 
it's probably a given that they will challenge that as well, but we feel that we're on very solid, uh, solid legal ground. Right, but they've challenged those, and, and you're one for three, and they're kind of two for three, right, in, in the court challenges, because the plastics ban was deemed to be overreached by the federal court, and, and the reference case on, on the impact assessment agency found problems with the constitutionality of it. Uh, so I, I, I know you said going into this that you were rethinking this particular framework based on those defeats uh, in, in front of the courts. So, so what did you leave out and, and how did you, I guess, charter-proof this or, or, legal, or, or put a, a legal vest uh, on this framework? Say we're one for three. I, I put a caveat around that. Uh, on, on, on the impact assessment, it wasn't a decision by the Supreme Court, but uh, uh, as you rightly pointed out, it was a reference case. Right. So it's an opinion by the Supreme Court, which stated that the Impact Assessment Act, part of the Impact Assessment Act of Canada, are constitutional, but it did point out there's some problems with it, and we're, we're course correcting. And as a responsible government, this is what we should do. Maybe we didn't get it right the first time. We, we can adjust, and that's exactly what we're doing. And as for plastics, it is a federal court judge that rendered that decision. And I, with all due respect, I profoundly disagree with that decision. In fact, we've already said that we would be appealing mm -hmm. to, the, to the Court of Appeal of, of Canada. There's a, there's a, a very important body of, uh, of scientific evidence out there pointing to the impacts of plastic pollution on, on humans, on, on the environment. And, and we feel that we, we, we disagree with, with, with that decision. So I think, we, we live in a, in, a, in a society where provinces, jurisdiction, companies can challenge things that, that, that the federal government can do. And if we need to, to adjust uh, while implementing these measures, we will, as we have in the past. Can, can you work with Saskatchewan and Alberta, though, uh, on, on uh, moving ahead with this collaboratively? I know when we spoke to Minister Wilkinson earlier in the week, he said there's still tables where you're working on things like clean electricity and all of these things. But when Daniel Smith is calling you a menace, Minister, um, that doesn't bode well for, for the, the strength of the relationship going forward. And, and certainly she didn't like the methane announcement this week. She definitely doesn't like the oil and gas announcement this week, and neither does Scott Moe. I, I mean, how do you work with the provinces that are at the centerpiece uh, of these industries, uh, given that the, na the tone of that relationship right now? As you know, David, a lot of this comes down to political posturing, um, because at the end of the day, when there's no cameras, when none of your journalists are, are, are around, uh, we, we work uh, t together. We, we, we did so on carbon pricing. Uh, last year, we renegotiated carbon pricing. With, 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 uh, with all provinces, including Saskatchewan and Alberta, and a more stringent carbon pricing regime. Uh, we're, we're working with them on, on, on deployments of, uh, of technology. Um, we're, we're doing a number of things. Uh, they've just announced that their, their regime to support carbon capture and storage in Alberta. We announced ours a little, a little over a year ago. We will, we will be working together on that. So, you know, I, I think, one has to make a, a distinction between, you know, what people say politically and, 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 and when there's no camera, when, when it's time to, to sit down and work things out, we usually Canadians have an ability to do that. Right. So, so on these issues in particular, I mean, Scott Moe and Daniel Smith ha have been the loudest on this. As, as we're speaking, I've not yet heard uh, from Premier Andrew Fury because Newfoundland and Labrador has, has an oil and gas industry. But more broadly, Minister, the, the Ford government wants the carbon tax gone, the Houston government in Nova Scotia, the Higgs government in New Brunswick, and obviously, um, you know, uh, the governments of, of Premiers Moe and, and Premier Smith. Um, these regulations come into force in 2026. You're inching towards hitting your 2030 targets, but given the... Uh, opposition to a lot of this at the provincial level, and the fact that the federal conservatives have said they're going to do away with all of this, do you think your climate measures survive the next election if you don't win? Uh, no, clearly. If, if, if the Apollyev and the Conservative Party of Canada win the next election, everything we've done to fight climate change, everything we've done to, to, to support transit in Canada, electrification, home energy retrofit, um, cleaner air for, for for our communities and and reduce asthma rates in our kids that that's all going out the door and and in a democratic society that that is a risk and and canadians when it comes time to, to go to the ballot box will have to decide whether or not this is a risk they they want to take and you point out to, to, to resistance by some of the province but you, you could also point out to the fact that nova scotia and and new brunswick signed on to us with the clean electricity regulation saying that they 
They wanted to work with us to, 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 to achieve those goals. Mm -hmm. um, the, the province of British Columbia is on board with many of these things. We just signed an historic agreement with them on, on, on nature protection. We can work with Quebec on, on, on many of these things, and, and, and even Ontario. I mean, we've made massive investment in electrification with the province of, of Ontario. So sometimes we have disagreements, and, and sometimes we can work together. And the fact that we have disagreements doesn't mean that we're unable to work together on, on anything. It, it is the nature of our, our, of our federation that we will have sometimes disagreements. But we strongly believe that what we're doing to fight climate change is the responsible thing to do for our kids and grandkids, and we'll make no apologies for it. You make no apologies, but just as a final point, Minister, I guess, how do you make the argument uh, to a public that has become increasingly worried about basic cost of living, uh, economic uncertainty, and sort of the challenges uh, of the high-cost environment or the higher-cost environment we're living in in the, in the political cycle that you have available to you uh, when sort of the, the opposition to what you're proposing warns about lost economic opportunity, lower GDP, and, and extra cost to consumers? Quite the opposite. Because of what we're doing uh, to fight climate change and, and investments we're making in, in, in clean technology, Canada has become one of the go-to places for international investment. Uh, foreign direct investment uh, places Canada third in the world uh, behind the United States and Brazil. And on a per capita basis, we're number one, number one in the world. Investors from all around the world are coming to Canada because of what we're doing to fight climate change, because of what we're doing to create the economy of the 21st century for workers and in Newfoundland and, and Saskatchewan and Alberta and Quebec and British Columbia and everyone across the country. And I believe that, I fundamentally believe that, that Pierre and the opposition party, the Conservative Party, are wrong about that. And they want to set us back decades uh, in, in, an, in an economy of the past and a, that, 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 has no, that, that has no longer stay in, in, in our world. Minister of Environment and Climate Change, Stephen Gobeau, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you very much, David. We asked to speak to someone from the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers about this announcement, and they sent us this statement. The unintended consequences of the draft framework announced today could result in significant curtailments, making this draft framework effectively a cap on production. At a time when the country's citizens are experiencing a substantial affordability crisis coincided with record budget deficits, the federal government risks curtailing the energy Canadians rely on, along with jobs and government revenues the energy sector contributes to Canada. Earlier today, Alberta Premier Daniel Smith aired her displeasure with the federal government's proposed cap on emissions, saying Ottawa needs to stay out of the province's business. She's currently in Dubai for the International Climate Conference COP28 and said she will fight this plan. There's, there's no question that if they continue on this path, it will end up with court. And I think we, in court, and I think we will win. We have now seen the federal government lose two cases at the federal court level because they continue to use their jurisdiction as a pretext to invade ours. This is not cooperative federalism. I would ask them to read the court decisions again. You do not come to an international conference and then drop two unilateral policies in our jurisdiction out of the blue without getting our agreement. That is what they essentially did this past week. It's unacceptable and it's unprofessional. They should leave us alone to implement our plan rather than trying to consistently overlay punitive new measures that create economic uncertainty. And that's what they've done is that uh, they have not aligned themselves with, with our plan and supported us in our efforts. What they're proposing to do, it looks like to me, is create some kind of brand new program that's only going to create more economic uncertainty. And if you, you think that uh, I'm mistaken in my reading on it, just look at the statements from the Pathways Group, from the Explorers and Producers Association, from the, uh, the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers. They agree. They're the ones who are making investment decisions, and they're saying that this is not helpful. Trevor Tuma said the same thing. Andrew Leach has said the same thing. You cannot keep layering policy on top of policy on top of policy and expect that you're going to create economic certainty Certainty. What they should be doing is aligning themselves with our plan because our plan is working as opposed to trying to create a brand new program that only creates more uncertainty. That was Alberta Premier Daniel Smith speaking from COP28 in Dubai. Here in Ottawa, opposition parties are not happy with today's announcement either, but the reason depends on which party you ask. The Liberals are patting themselves on the back for their botched emissions cap. 
After two years of delays, they've announced a watered-down oil and gas cap that won't even cut emissions enough to meet the Liberals' own target, only the Conservatives' old target. The same wow. Conservatives who don't even believe this is a crisis. These NDP Liberals are off in a global conference in a petro-state, and they are announcing and imposing policies and laws that will damage Canadian workers, Canadian communities, make power and fuel more expensive. Uh, they should get home. They should actually be working with Canadians. Ottawa has released its plan to cap oil and gas emissions, but some provinces are already pushing back. It is the nature of our, our, of our federation that we will have sometimes disagreements, but we strongly believe that what we're doing to fight climate change is the responsible thing to do for our kids and grandkids, and we'll make no apologies for it. I quite frankly hope that Justin Trudeau replaces this minister. He's a menace. He's a menace to us. He's a menace to national unity. He is clearly destructive in trying to, to get to some common ground, and that is on him. It's not on us. We have done everything we possibly can to uh, approach with the spirit of collaborative federalism. Well, the federal government wants to cap emissions from that sector at 35 to 38 percent below 2019 levels, and they want to do that by 2030. And that, that's less than what was originally expected. And to put that into some context, a company emitting 171 megatons in 2019 would have to cut that back to 112 megatons. So that's a sense of the challenge ahead. Will this plan help Canada meet its emissions targets, or is this all headed to court? We're going to bring in the power panel on that. Rob Benzie is the Queen's Park Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star. James Moore. He's a senior advisor at Denton's and a former Conservative cabinet minister. Andrew Thompson is a former Saskatchewan NDP cabinet minister, now chief of government relations at the University of Toronto. And here with me in Ottawa, Stevie O'Brien, a senior advisor at Macmillan Mantage, who used to work for this Liberal government. Uh, Stevie, let, let, let's start with you. This is um, a lower target for emissions reductions than, than the government had sort of contemplated when it put out its initial plan, but they say it's the one that's practical and technically achievable. But Alberta and Saskatchewan still do not like it. Where does this go? So I think the government was really careful this in calibrating uh, the framework to be to be achievable, to be something that industry has already said that they can achieve within a timeline, and that means that it will be an emissions cap rather than a production cap. And I think right. that's critical when you get into the issues of jurisdiction. Right, but James, we, we've heard from Alberta, Saskatchewan, we've heard from the uh, from CAP, which is the, one of the big lobby groups for the industry. They say an emissions cap like this. Uh, oh, we lost James. I'm going to go to Andrew then. Andrew, as a former uh, Saskatchewan uh, cabinet minister, uh, they say this will effectively be uh, a production cap and it will target the provinces that rely heavily on those industries. So, so what, what do you make of, of where this has landed today? Well, I think the, the Western premiers have a point if they can keep the, the rhetoric toned down a little bit that you know, these are uh, going to impact investment decisions. Of the 4.5 million barrels of oil that are produced daily in Canada, about 3 million of those come out of the oil sands. So I mean, there is a, you know, uh, an investment a need there, and there is a possibility to address some of that with, with better technology. But those decisions aren't going to happen quickly, and it's unclear exactly what the technology is that's going to be needing to be applied to reach those caps. Overall, the, the government, the federal government coming in with a, uh, you know, a cap-and-trade system like they have uh, does provide some flexibility. I mean, let's remember this is a, a government that has not hit any of its uh, climate targets since it came to office in 2015. So, you know, reducing them maybe is getting closer to what, what reality is. But moving to this type of a tool, I think, does provide an opportunity to work with industry to figure out what is actually achievable. And now the question is, you know, are they able to bring industry, are they able to bring the provincial governments to the table in a way that accomplishes that? Well, uh, uh, James, uh, we've got James back. Uh, uh, James, uh, you, you know, we heard what Daniel Smith said. She, she called Stephen Gobo a, a menace, says this is a, he's a menace to national unity, he's a menace to Alberta. I know there's a lot of rhetoric around this, uh, but, but the, the plain meaning of the plan put on the table today. Can this do what the government wants it to do without really causing extreme hardship and disruption in that sector? Probably not, but Andrew's last point there, I think, was the salient one, right? Which is, with regard to climate change policy, for two decades now, the, the game has been 
uh, have high, big promises under deliver, big promises under deliver. This is the old Paul Martin strategy when it came to budget deficit financing, right? Promise and, and forecast high deficits and come in underneath it. Um, it's what municipal governments are doing all across British Columbia. You, you, you put out a paper from city staff saying your tax rates are going to go up so much that the councillors show real courage and come in underneath that. And the Liberals are now doing that with regard to regula regulations and expectations where you put out a discussion paper or a roundtable conversation piece, then people come together and, and attack it, and then you come in underneath that and to try to look reasonable. But at the end of the day, um, you know, this is a government whose reputation when it comes to managing things and, and managing sectors of the economy is not great. They just put forward legislation on managing the media sector and they had to compromise and, reg and, and bounce away from it and kind of walk away ultimately with their tail between their legs. They can't regulate plastic straws, but they think they're going to regulate the most complicated area of public policy, which is the constitutional mess and entanglement of resource development, resource extraction, and global sales. And they think that government in Ottawa has some kind of a capacity to regulate this effectively, I, I think it's it's passing credulity to think that they're going to be able to do any of this. Well, uh, Benzi, it sure doesn't sound like they're going to get a lot of help at, at the provincial level in the areas where, where these industries are, are most concentrated. I mean, what do you make of what Daniel Smith had to say today, uh, threatening to, to build a constitutional shield against the federal government's efforts? I don't know what that means uh, precisely, uh, but, you know, I'm told every legal avenue they have available to them, so maybe this is headed back to the Supreme Court. I guess it's like Stephen Harper's firewall around Alberta. Remember, um, I, yeah, I, 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 I guess that that Danielle Smith and Stephen Gibo won't be having a Perrier together at the hotel bar at, at COP because uh, it uh, it didn't sound. I, I, I think she actually stepped up the rhetoric today, uh, calling him a menace. Um, it, it, I mean, it, 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 James is right. This is a very, very complicated endeavor. Uh, the the timelines are way out in the future. I mean, it's uh, this even if this happens, even if this liberal government survives somehow till twenty twenty six, which is highly un, you know probably unlikely right now. Uh, by if we look at the current polls, uh, I, it's not clear to me what's going to happen next. So I, I think I think if I were, uh, I think they need to tone down the rhetoric. The liberals and the conservatives need to tone down the rhetoric. I think Canadians, by and large, do want a cleaner climate, but Canadians, by and large, also want to be able to afford uh, to heat their homes. And this is the problem. It, we're, we're asking Canadians to dig deeper at a time when we have a, an affordability crisis, and that's problematic. Stevie, what, what's your sense of what the Liberals need to do? I think we forgot one key part of this conversation that we've been having, which is the oil and gas sector are the largest emissions emitters mm -hmm. in Canada. They rep, uh, all they represent more than 25 percent. It's about 28, I think. Yeah, yeah. So more than a quarter of all emissions are coming from that sector. This government is committed to fighting climate change and with a variety of tools. You can't address climate change in Canada and you can't achieve our goals without uh, addressing the oil and gas industry. And right. It, no, no, keep going. So, and I think, sorry, the cap is about holding industry to account. Right. So, so Andrew, th this is my question on this. There, there's only two sectors of the economy where emissions are still going up. It's oil and gas and it's transportation. And the electrification agenda on vehicles may very well take care of a lot of the uh, transportation emissions. Mm -hmm. There's only one province where emissions are still going up, and that's Alberta. So if you're going to hit these targets, and, and there was a, a, a climate progress report that came out today that shows that they're not going to hit the 40% in 2030, but they are going to get it to 36%, which is a whole lot better than the outlook in 2015. Oh. There's no way to do this without, in some way, getting something from the oil and gas sector. And how do you do that without a legislative framework to force it? Th th this is what I, I, I wonder. You know, so, you know, both of these, transportation and the, um, the oil and gas sector, both need to be addressed. Mm -hmm. Certainly the work that's being done on electrification around transportation is good. It was great to see the Liberals sign on to the, uh, the idea that we'd be tripling the amount of nuclear power generated in the country as part of the solution to cleaning the grid. Uh, what they need to be doing is that same, having that same kind of conversation with the oil and gas sector. Conventional oil and gas, which has been relatively stable at about a million, million and a half barrels a day, you know, have been making gains in terms of how they are reducing their, their carbon footprint. I mean, they are no longer flaring gas, they're capturing it. They're using the horizontal drilling and carbon sequestration. I mean, there are technologies that are coming in that are helping them do that. Right. The oil sands are a little bit different because they are much more carbon intensive. And in Saskatchewan's case, as Bakken comes on and looking at some of the implications there, 
uh, I mean, there are going to be challenges. The, the question is, are they making the investments along with industry or allowing, uh, working with industry to allow the, the, uh, the investment in the technologies that will help to reduce that? The idea that somehow we are going to reduce consumption alone uh, probably isn't realistic. The ability to capture some of the gains through technological advancements is pretty real, but it's going to take a concerted effort. James, I know one of the uh, real guiding principles as they're developing this framework is, is that they want to stay out of court or at least stay out of losing in court after the plastics ban uh, being overturned at the federal level, still got to go to the Supreme Court, and, and the reference case which criticized parts of, of the Impact Assessment Agency. Do you think what they've come up with here puts them on any kind of a safer constitutional ground as it targets emissions through pricing? unknown because it's a bit of a punt in terms of what the regulations will actually look like. However, you know, people are, are, are being critical. Some people are being critical of Daniel Smith and using the word menace with regard to Minister Guibault. I think an, in, an inverse criticism can be leveled against Minister Guibault. I know that he's in Doha, but did he have to make this announcement from the other side of the planet, which is seen as, you know, a critique of Alberta's way of life, way of living, and the way of building its economy to the benefit not just of Albertans, but of all Canadians. I think if there was a minister of fisheries and oceans who was in Nagano or who is in Singapore making a, a massive sweeping policy announcement about what would be the impact on the fishing fishing industries in Atlantic Canada. They would be rightly criticized for not facing these people. If they want to avoid court fights, if they want to avoid the constitutional pushback that they're seeing from Premier Smith, at least rhetorically so far, M Minister Guibault and the prime, prime Minister should go to Alberta. They should make these announcements in Grand Prairie. They should go to Leduc. They should go to Fort McMurray. They should meet with the people whose industry they're proposing to regulate in part out of existence in the near in the near future or the medium future and actually have the courage to hold this country together by making a reasonable argument to reasonable Canadians about the future of the country with regard to climate as opposed to doing a press conference that was three quarters in French from the other side of the planet attacking Alberta's right to develop its own economy. Um, Benzie, what, what do you what, what do you make of that point in terms of uh, how to manage this from a communications perspective of like being you know at an international climate conference and then ministers here in Ottawa, but but also the argument you hear from the government that look the the transportation sector which is the other big emitter they've they've regulated that say by 2035 75 percent of cars for sale in the country have got to be zero emission and they're stepping up with tax credits now to help the oil sector do the same. Look, I think it would have sold badly in Alberta if, she, if they'd announced it on 8th Avenue in Calgary or something. I just, I'm not sure there's a way to, to package this kind of an announcement that's going to be palatable to Albertans. And I understand that. It's, it's, it's a critical part of their economy. It's a critical part of the Canadian economy. And I think sometimes outside of Alberta, and certainly here in Ontario, sometimes we forget how, how important uh, natural resources are to, uh, to, our, to our country's economy. Uh, that said, I mean, I think... They, they, I think the problem is there's this element of social, social engineering that I think the liberals are, are sometimes guilty of. And people, Canadians feel that they want to, they want, that the, that the government sometimes wants to tell them how to live their lives rather than take them along. Like, I'm, we're going to guide you to how we get there. It's rather a, more like a tut-tutting kind of way of saying, this is how you should li live your life. You should ride your bike to work or you should, uh, uh, you know, heat your home with, with, solar panels on the roof, things like that. I think there's, a, there's, a, there, there's a, sometimes a lack of reality. Having said that, I think Canadians are concerned about climate change. They may not be as much right now. Our, the Abacus poll last week said that, that that's, that's, it's dropping somewhat. But I think that's a, 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 a short-term thing due to, due to inflation. I think that overall, you ask your kids what they're worried about. They're not worried about, well, maybe your boys are a little bit young, yeah. David, but kids, my kids' age, you know, our teenagers, are, they are genuinely concerned about the planet. Uh, Stevie, uh, fi final word to you. I mean, how do you think the, the Liberals can, can bring people along? Is it even possible with uh, opponents like, you know, Daniel Smith and, and Scott Moe out there? Well, watching Daniel Smith's news -er earlier today, it was really clear that she is guided by industry when she um, is thinking about climate policy in Alberta. And I don't think most Canadians trust industry to regulate itself. Um, they've made promises, they've made commitments, and I think it was smart today, and the cap-and-trade system will hold industry to account. Okay, all right, we're going to leave it there. Conservatives are going to f fight tooth and nail to stop this Prime Minister from getting on his surfboard and leaving this place until he agrees to pass our common-sense proposal 
to axe the tax. We've seen this playbook from the extreme right wing of the Republican Party that has tried to shut down the U.S. government. And now Pierre Polyev and his caucus are trying to bring those same tactics here to Canada. We're going to be here as long as we need to be here to stand up for Canadians. That was the official opposition and government gearing up for a battle of wills playing out in the House of Commons tonight. Let's take a look live into the chamber where conservatives are forcing forcing a vote marathon. It's in response to senators narrowly voting to amend a bill that would exempt some farm heating fuels from the carbon tax. And conservatives say they'll tie up the government's agenda until they see more carbon tax carve-outs. So, what are Canadians going to make of all of this, this procedural brawl? The Power Panel is with me, Stevie O'Brien, Andrew Thompson, James Moore, and Rob Benzie. Uh, James, what, what do you make of this? Right before Christmas, forcing a 27-hour marathon vote, tying up committees with amendments. I have Jewish MPs texting me saying we can't go home for Hanukkah at a time we really need to be in our ridings. Is this a good move? Is this a bad move? What do you make of it? It's a cliche. And it happens almost every year. When we were in government, the NDP put forward hundreds, if not thousands, of amendments, and we sat around the clock for three or four days in Parliament. Famously, you may remember, David, Germont Graywall was an MP from Surrey, and he actually grew a beard, like a noticeable beard, in <laughs> Parliament while we were sitting there. Um, <laughs> The liberal, you know, I, I think that was Karina Gould. I heard the voice, but I didn't yeah. see her the face. I think it was Minister Gould. So, she saw, I mean, the liberals did this. The liberals did this when we were in government. They put forward hundreds and thousands of amendments, and we sat for three or four days, exact same time of year, just as Canadians are breaking at the end of a long year, and they're frustrated, and they want, you know, it's showing that Parliament is working and we're standing up for you. The liberals have done this. The NDP have done this. The Conservatives are doing it. Pierre Polyev becomes Prime Minister. The liberals will do it, and then the NDP will do it. It's standard fare. It's the narrative around it and whether or not Canadians find any saliency in it that matters. Uh, But this is a parliamentary tactic um, and if it's it's based on some reasonable expectation of getting some amendments passed, then then by all means use the tactic. But this has been done many times before by all the parties, so anybody who's outraged is doesn't know their history. Well, yeah, but, you know, and the rest of the parties support carbon pricing. So I, I can't imagine this This is going to pass, you know, so it, it is what it is. But James, on, on the gray wall one where you grew the beers, were the leaders of the parties doing the filibuster in Parliament back then? Like, were they there for they, it? They all? did, actually. Yeah. To their, yeah, because just like any good, I mean, you know, Andrew and others, you know, who've been candidates before, you know, a, a leader in a campaign has to be the person who donates the most, who works the hardest. And I remember at two or three o'clock in the morning making a point, Stephen Harper as prime minister coming into the house. And by the way, Stefan Dion did it as well. So did Ignatius. So did Bob Ray. So did, uh, so did Thomas Mulcair. Um, it's, you know, you have to be there for your team and show them that you care too. Okay. So, Andrew, on that point, uh, the liberals are making a big deal out of the fact that Pierre Polyev is not there today at least not at the start of it. He's at a fundraiser in Pointe-Claire, Quebec, and not there for the fun. He said he's going to stop the prime minister from getting on a surfboard. He's going to work through Christmas, ruin everyone's vacation, and he isn't there at least at the start. Does that undermine the argument he's off raising some cash instead? I don't know if it undermines it. I think the, the rhetoric isn't helpful and that it detracts from what the issue is. It looks like one of personal animus uh, towards the prime minister and a bit of vindictiveness, as opposed to what is an actual substantive issue that the conservatives do have, which is the Senate voting to overturn, uh, you know, legislation that was uh, uh, proposals that were passed by the House. Mm-hmm. That is a highly problematic uh, situation. I get it that within the constitutional framework that that is you know, part of the, what the Senate is there to do. But for an unelected set of members to overturn the democratic uh, will of the House uh, with multi-party support, uh, I do think is problematic. The Conservatives, however, are wanting, it appears, to, to move over to something bigger in terms of making this a bigger theme. I'm not sure that the, you know, the, the narrative they're spinning lines up, it doesn't really seem like a common sense solution to keep people you know, through Christmas voting. But to James's point, that's what MPs get paid to do, is to go and represent us and stand and vote when their names are called. Uh, Stevie, they, they, they tried to do about 20,000 amendments on, on, on the Sustainable Jobs Act at committee, and they, it got all bundled together and, and dealt with in like five minutes. But the committee was still working until like 2, 3 in the morning. Things got pretty tense. I mean, what do you make of uh, what's happening in Parliament? So I've sat through, like James, many of these all-night sessions, and they're brutal. And I think that, you know, all parties should get together and amend the House rules so that everything stops at a reasonable time, because at some point, somebody there's going to be a health crisis. People shouldn't work like this. Um, 
Okay, on that point, uh, Karina Gould uh, just did a did a scrum, uh, and, and I'm told that uh, she proposed a motion for health breaks and ending at midnight and returning at 7 a.m. and and the Conservatives said no. But you've got to put like Karina Gould, uh, Stevie, I. She's due to have a baby, I think, in January, February. And, uh, you know, the, this is uh, probably not an ideal working situation for someone like her. I guess you're going to have to spell it out. For, for pregnant women, for people with health conditions, for some of the older uh, members of parliament, it's just uh, it's reckless and it's unsafe. And I, I agree. It's, uh, you know, all parties need to, to do better. Um, and uh, I'm hoping that maybe cooler heads will prevail uh, in the future. So, so, James, on this, uh, the, the, the Conservatives have sort of uh, brought their demands down to three Fs, right? To, to remove the carbon tax for families, for farmers, and for First Nations for good, uh, as they say. We've talked to an economist who's going to be on later in the show. You eliminate the carbon tax, food prices are not going to change in any kind of a meaningful way. Even if you exempt farmers, it'll help farmers, but it won't pass on lower food prices because a lot of the commodities are either regulated or set by the world price. Um, so, so the economics underlying the politics don't seem to suggest that people will get the big relief if they get their way. Well, the battle lines are drawn, aren't they? Mm. Um, you know, <clears throat> some will be on some side. Some economists will say something. Some economists will say the other. Pierre Polyev has a position. Justin Trudeau and and the combined opposition has the other. And the voters will decide. It's, it's a perfect issue over which to have a, a, an election campaign fought. And I think <clears throat> both parties seem to be saying that they relish the fight. And I think it's a mistake for the Liberals to do so. Go back, by the way, to Stevie's point. Uh, you know, th these votes do matter. I mean, in the sense symbolically that it shows the lines which you're going to fight on. But there is actually a risk. And the, look. The the Conservatives aren't, aren't naive about this. They will be mindful, of, I think, about Minister Gould's health situation and others. When we had these marathon votes, and it was like three or four days, it was around mm -hmm. the clock, and th there are actually are, are, there are health implications there. That without naming names, I remember some of my colleagues had blood sugar issues, and somebody almost passed out, and, and there were people who had health issues. Some people, as well, I remember one colleague who missed a funeral and was very bitter about it, and yeah. like these things, there, there's a human cost to this, but you know, this is what you're paid to do. You want to play in the big leagues, you want to go to the House of Commons, there's, a, there's an avenue for this as a part parliamentary tactic to, to make a point. You, if there's a reasonable reason for you to be outside of the House, you can make an appeal to pair. If the Conservatives show that they're not willing to pair the votes and go away, then you make that point public and the people, the public can factor that in as, as to whether or not they want the Conservatives to govern the country going forward. This is all right. transparent on television. It's it's fine. It's not great theatre, but it's fine and people are making their points known and there are risks to it for everybody, but they're modest risks and we'll end the parliamentary session with a bunch of tired politicians and that's fine too. Okay, this is what politicians are paid to do. What I'm paid to do is to get all the panels in and I read that note and I skipped Fenzi and I'm sorry, Rob. So why don't you have, I was not, I was not being like the speaker and, and refusing to recognize you. I just, I just screwed up. Go ahead, man. What do you want to say? <laughs> I, you know what I, I think I, 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 the one thing that Karina Gould said that I didn't like is that this is like the the, the Republicans in the United States grinding government to halt. This James is right. This is this happens in every legislature uh, around this time of year, uh, especially minority legislatures. And I think it's it's part of our democracy. I mean, if you don't want to, uh, if, if you like hot dogs, maybe you shouldn't see how the sausages are made. And this is how the sausages are made. And it's um it's it's. My my thing about all of this that I don't quite understand is the conservatives have spent a lot of money, a lot of time, and and done I think a pretty good job uh, of reframing Pierre Polyev. Uh, the ads have been slick. The messaging is good. The the, the makeover uh, seems effective, and yet they seem to undermine that work with him being seen to be this sort of oppositional opposition leader. And I think I I mean I I, I think if you if the public sees you as auditioning to be opposition leader, voters may keep you as opposition leader. I think if I were him, I would have someone else being more of the front man, the negative mm. person, and and him being more the statesman. I I I just I don't quite understand their play. I know he un he loves this stuff, and I know it's who he is. But I'm not sure if I were a swing voter in Mississauga or in Brampton or in Oakville or in Durham region that I'd be thinking, ah, I like I like this negativism. I th I don't I'm not sure people will buy it. Andrew, I saw you nodding along as Benzi was getting belatedly uh, to his point. Uh, what, what do you make of that argument? <laughs> well, it's such a good point. I'm glad you let it in. <laughs> but it was, uh, I think that that really is a, kind of at the core of the, of the issue as we're watching the bigger narrative, the meta-narrative move forward over the next couple of months is really where do the Conservatives take this commanding lead that they have in the polls and you know, how do they balance off what they're obviously driving towards, which is wanting to establish a mandate for our next government, 
But balance that against this real, you know, fact that they seem to just relish in this gutter politics stuff, this uh, hopping down into, you know, into the gutter for the, you know, the uh, the close brawl. I'm not sure how that uh, how that's going to work itself out, or what the the point of it is, and maybe it's just the politics of the season. So, so Stevie, on that, I, I mean, I don't know how you feel about Karina Gould comparing this to the Republicans. They are obviously making this big strategic effort to try to link, you know, uh, the, the, the conservatives to the MAGA wing of the Republican Party. You hear that more and more. How do the liberals approach this? Is this the right tactic? What's the opportunity for them? So I don't think the all-night voting is exactly... Um, akin to anything the Republicans are doing, as James said, that's been going on for years. Mm -hmm. But some of the language and the rhetoric and the anger and the bullying uh, seems to resonate. Um, Danielle Smith's news conference earlier today had that sort of populist vibe and that sort of anger. And I don't, I don't think that Canadian, I do think it is undermining Polyev's makeover. Um, He reminding people that he's a bully. James, uh, do you see it that way? I mean, the tactic, as you say, isn't (laughs) new, but tone and style uh, in the execution of these tactics is always, in some ways, more important in in a lot of ways. How do you think this uh, could potentially be perceived? It's said accurately that the most difficult job in politics is that of official opposition leader, because you have to oppose while also propose. You have to stand up firm and make sure that everybody who doesn't like the incumbent government knows that you're there to fight the government with everything. Because if you don't use all the tools at your disposal to try to stop the government from doing what it's doing, then you must not be serious about opposing the government. But on the other hand, you have to do what folks here have described, right, which is present yourself as a credible alternative government, which is, you know, in terms of tone, temperament, and presentation, different than the first part. So you have to do both. You have to be able to push and pull in the right measure. And that's sort of the finesse of politics. It's not straightforward. It's not simple. And so stylistically, what may be, you know, uh, may speak to a certain audience, may not speak to another audience. Uh, There's a dance going on with all politicians and all voters at all times, and we'll see how it comes out in the end. But I would say as we come towards the end of calendar 2023, when you look at the metrics of where they are in the polls, where they are with every demographics, fundraising, and so on, I think the Conservatives and Pierre Polyev are doing just fine. Yeah, no no question. They've had a good political year in a a country where they're maybe the only ones. Uh, But, uh, uh, Benzi, on that oppose and propose uh, balance, that, that James highlighted. They've got the opposed thing down, right? Like we know uh, what they're against. But uh, you know, on the proposed side, for example, today, they didn't ask a question about the oil and gas emissions cap until 3.10 p.m. Eastern time, right at the very end of question period. And it was Jeremy Patzer. It wasn't like one of the, the front bench, you know, big name uh, conservative uh, MPs. And we don't really know what their plan would be for emissions reductions to meet the Paris targets or any of these things. So, like, how, how do they balance this at a time when climate is what they're fighting over, but they haven't put anything on the table of kind of what their solutions are? Well, I mean, I don't blame them for not putting anything on the table just yet, because I, I still don't think we're going to have an election until 2025. So if I were the Conservatives, I wouldn't be putting out substantive policy now either. Um, but I do think that in terms of tone, I, if I were Pierre Polyev, and he should remember this guy, I would be talking to my friend Stephen Harper, because I covered Harper in opposition. I was on his campaign plane in the 04 campaign and in the 0506 campaign, and you watched the growth of a leader. You saw how much, how improved he was between those uh, those two campaigns. And on that 06 election campaign, we all felt in the back of the plane that we were on the plane of the next prime minister because he was proposing things. He was he was campaigning on a, on a pretty positive vision, all things considered. And I think he wasn't. Uh, it wasn't all about tearing things apart. And I and James was a part of that team. He knows exactly what I'm talking about. And I think this is what I I, I wonder. If, if, if you're always talking about how wrong everything is, Canada is broken and, and everything is wrong, uh, I, I, I don't know, man. I think people like positive, uh, positive vibes. I really do. I think that, I mean, I know I don't think Sunny Ways is going to ever work for Pierre or Justin Trudeau again, but mm-hmm. you never know. I mean, but can I just <laughs> I make one? Yeah, go ahead, Andrew. Just make one quick point on that. And it's that it would be a mistake to think the Conservatives are not currently developing policy. They are actively working with stakeholder groups to understand what the expectations are of what a new government would do within the limitations of what they're setting out for their universe. And, you know, I think it is a smart strategy on their part at this point to hold those cards close as they're working through that. First of all, they're getting, I think, a much more honest response from stakeholders uh, as people are looking at the polls and wondering what a next government looks like. 
uh, but they are also uh, having more mature conversations about realistically what's going forward. The question, I think, really is goes back to, you know, to, to what Rob was asking about: Is that what you want your leader to be doing, right. which is fronting this, or should you, in fact, be putting out, uh, you know, a different group of uh, of attack dogs? Frankly, uh, the best line I think this week actually goes to the Prime Minister when he talked about you know, the only farming that uh, Pierre Polyev understood was rage farming. And I thought if the, if the Liberals can stick to that kind of a uh, polite besmirching, they're going to be on much firmer ground than this uh, kind of mudslinging about what the Republicans are up to. Right. No, uh, not a bad point. But, you know, if they did want to put out a climate plan, a 15-minute video on climate, there's a lot of people who will watch that. All right, I want to thank the Power Panel. We've got to leave it there. Stevie O'Brien, James Moore, Andrew Thompson, and Rob Benzie. Thanks so much, gang. Well, another topic dominating Parliament Hill today, the cost of groceries. Prime Minister had a chance to lower grocery bills by removing the carbon tax on farmers. But once again, he proved he is not worth the cost. But you know who is driving up prices? Vladimir Putin. He's driving up the price of fuel and of food. So while politicians swear over who or what is to blame for high food prices, we learned today those prices will likely continue to rise in 2024, at least according to an annual report on grocery costs. The average family of four is expected to pay $700 more for groceries over the next year, with prices continuing to be pushed up by interest rates, energy costs, and wars overseas and climate change. Meanwhile, the opposition is threatening to filibuster the House of Commons until there's a carbon tax carve-out on firm heating, which they say will make food more affordable. For more on the issue of food pricing, I'm joined by food economist at the University of Guelph, Mike von Masso. Professor, uh, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. All right, so this warning from the report released by the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University, a lot of factors go into this. $700 for a family of four is, is nothing to sneeze at. In your view, what are the main drivers of food inflation? Well, food inflation is different from general inflation. Food inflation is generally driven by supply side factors rather than demand side factors. So if you look at what's happened in the past few years, the war in Ukraine, the last year we've had a lower Canadian dollar, which makes imports, particularly in the winter, more expensive. Freights become more expensive. We've seen a bunch of extreme weather events that have affected the amount of, of food available. So we've had the, and, and there are other things, we've had this sort of perfect storm. Uh, we usually have uh, sort of a one and a half to two and a half percent increase in food prices, just like general inflation. And that happens when individual things go up. You know, we have you know, if you remember a few years ago, we had $10 cauliflower because of frost in California. This time, we've just had everything go up simultaneously. So I think uh, uh, I would agree. I, I'm probably a little more optimistic than the, than the Dalhousie report and would probably be in the one and a half to three percent range. But again, it's hard to predict a war. It's hard to predict an extreme weather event. I think the thing that's most predictable is unpredictability, and we'll see much more variability coming. Okay. Uh, I, I like your prediction better, by the way, as someone who is from a family of four. Uh, but but what, what you're laying out there is complexity. And, and what we're kind of getting in the political arguments about what's making groceries more expensive is a little bit of a simplicity, people pointing at one particular thing. So, so I want to go through some of those if I can with you, Professor, like the carbon tax. Right now there's a filibuster happening in Parliament to take the carbon tax off a bunch of things. If you got rid of carbon pricing, would that make a massive difference to the point that people would know? No, the no, the evidence is, is, is pretty clear. I and others have said that the, the carbon tax might decrease food price. Getting rid of the carbon tax might decrease food prices a little bit, but it wouldn't be substantial. And that's borne out by a variety of, of, of organizations, including the Bank of Canada, Statistics Canada, and other commentators have said the same thing. I think the other important thing to remember relative to the carbon tax is that most households are getting carbon tax back. Mm -hmm. And, and in fact, uh, that if we got rid of the uh, carbon tax, more than half of Canadian households, particularly low-income Canadian households, would actually be worse off because they wouldn't be paying it anymore, but they wouldn't be getting the, the, the payments back. Uh, 
And the whole idea of the carbon tax is to change our behavior. That's why most people are getting money back. Right. Okay. Now, there are certain exceptions to that. Obviously, Quebec with the cap-and-trade system, B.C. with the provincial-run system, but certainly Ontario, the prairies, and some of the Atlantic provinces. Okay. But what about specific carve-outs? Because there's a piece of legislation working its way through the Senate that's been bounced back and forth, Bill C-234, which is about exempting uh, fuels used for grain drying and burn heating and things like this on farms from carbon pricing. The argument for people behind that is if you give farmers a break on their costs, it'll be passed along to you when you buy your groceries. Is it as simple as that? What impact could that have? I I don't think it would be as simple as that. I think if you look for many of these commodities, we compete in an international market and we're price takers for these commodities. So if we gave the farmers a a carve out, might it have a very small impact on on food prices? Perhaps, Uh, but, but the impact really is on incomes and predictability for farmers. And and so again, as I said before, the carbon tax is intended to change behavior, not be a revenue generator. And for most of these farmers who are drying uh, grain or heating barns, they don't have a good alternative. And so it's not going to change behavior, it's just going to cost them money. So it won't achieve the environmental objectives. So I think if we want to do make this effective, perhaps we need to say, well, in 10 years, we're going to reinstitute the carbon tax uh, and and give them some time to adapt. Right, which is similar to the approach with the carve-out for home heating oil, for example, that you've got a three-year window to get on a heat pump uh, to avoid paying that cost going forward. Similar principle. It, it, exactly the same principle. And if you look, that that... Agriculture is already exempt for diesel fuel and and gasoline used in farms. Most of these barns and uh, grain dryers are heated with uh, with natural gas. So so part of it is just the, the agriculture arguing we should be consistent here. Right. Okay. So on the other side of the coin, we have the New Democrats who who are arguing that greedflation is driving this, that excess profit-taking by the big grocery store companies and the food chains, Costco, Loblaws, and others. Uh, 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 that's what's driving this, and they've dragged Galen Weston in front of committee uh, a couple of times on this point. I, I, do you believe that it's excess profit-taking by the grocery stores that's causing the spike in our food baskets? It, it- Greedflation is not contributing significantly to inflation at all, if at all. And if you look at, yes, profits are increasing, uh, partly because prices are going up, and uh, but the but the percent so the absolute value is going up. But if you look at the percentage of profits relative to top line sales, those have not changed substantially. So the, so there's not been a substantial change in behavior. Uh, since we've seen this inflation and and you know while I don't agree with everything that Galen Weston has said I I do think he has a a valid point whereas if you look at the percentage of sales that uh, that all of the that that profits represent even if grocery stores made zero dollars we still would have had positive inflation in the last couple of years and so grocery stores are not contributing significantly to, to the prices we've had. And I'll go back to what I was saying before. Uh, war in Ukraine, extreme weather events, Canadian dollar, uh, and, and, and on and on and on. Okay, so uh, Galen Weston, though, was here in Ottawa today, before a parliamentary committee today, and, and one of the things the politicians are pushing for is a grocery code of conduct that they say they want them to sign on to. He says he can't do it because he argues the requirements under the grocery code of conduct would limit their abilities to, to deal with suppliers in a way that, that's beneficial for them and would actually be inflationary and could drive up costs for up, about, a, about a billion dollars. What do you make of that argument? I think to a degree he's right. I think uh, he's being a little disingenuous when he says it, though, unfortunately. So if you look, what a grocery code of conduct is intended to do is is set parameters around what grocers can ask their suppliers for. And we heard Galen Weston in his last testimony say, we've refused to accept some price increases that, that our suppliers have, have tried to, to implement, and we have all of these other fees. So if we control their ability to to uh, extract concessions from their suppliers it means that the uh, the large players will have 
lower profits because they'll be able to take less from suppliers. But if you look on the other side, they're still competing with the smaller players. So we heard Michael Medline from Empire Group earlier this week say, bring it on. We think it's a good idea. And, And they don't think it's inflationary. So if Loblaws get squeezed, they will either lose some profits or they will increase prices. And I think that that's why Galen Weston is arguing it's inflationary, but they can only increase prices if everybody does it. And so if Empire Group is saying, well, we're not taking a whole lot from our suppliers or we're at least taking less. So if we control that, it will probably be largely absorbed by Loblaws themselves. But but I would agree with 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 Mr. Weston and say it's unlikely to reduce prices but it may increase prices somewhat depending on the competitive landscape uh, uh, of other grocers and given what what Empire Group is saying I would guess it won't be as inflationary as the big players who have the most to lose from a grocery code of conduct are arguing. Okay I I have one final question because it, it sounds to me you, all the issues I've raised with you are the issues the politicians raise as a solution to high food prices, and, and you don't believe they're actually contributing in a massive way. So are they focusing on the wrong things? I mean, what could politicians at the federal level focus on to actually help food prices go down, or is this just something that's global and they can't control it? Well, I think it's exactly right, David, is is that these are supply-side issues. Uh, the, the, uh, the government is getting blamed for things that they aren't doing. Uh, now, in fairness, they often take credit for things that they haven't done either. And, <laughs> this is and true. so the, the government cannot control the war in Ukraine. The government cannot make it stop raining when it's flooding in, in California. The government can't make it rain in the West when we're experiencing drought. So many of these things are just unfortunate reality that are all happening at the same time. Now, we expect some of those things to happen, and going forward, hopefully, we'll spread those things out a little bit more. But fundamentally, because these are mostly supply-side issues, the government can't do much other than what it did in the summer, which was giving low-income Canadians direct cash payments as a way of buffering these higher prices. But they can't do much to bring them down. Mike Von Massow, food economist at the University of Guelph. Thank you for your time today, sir. Thank you for having me. Have a great day. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.